This is ContraZoom, where we go back and forth about film. I'm your host, Dakota Arsenault. Every once in a while, I like to have a chat with friends of the show. Not about a specific movie or topic, but just to get to know them and their tastes a bit better. I call these bonus episodes Better Know a Contributor. In the past, we've done them, done them with co-host Rachel Ho and friends Callum McDab, Sammy Felchenfeld, and Stephanie Pryor. And of course, one on myself as well. On today's edition of the special, we have Jeff Ballmer, who was last heard on episode 186, 2022 Oscars, Coda Pizza of Westside Belfast, and is one half of the Classic Movies Live, the pre-recorded show where you talk about potential future classics. I've been a guest on Classic Movie Live a few times, and I always enjoy coming on. Uh, your latest long-form series is one based around the filmography of Anna Kendrick called Kicking It With Kendrick. I've especially enjoyed the series for the great guests that you and Pierre have been bringing on. I learned so much from the musical episodes with Ben where you talked about Into the Woods in the last five years. I also really like the breakdown of rom-coms that you had with Rachel on the Mr. Right Show. But you also review new movies every week too. So welcome back to the show, Jeff, and to your first solo appearance. How are you doing today? Um, I'm doing very good. Thank you for that wonderful intro. Uh, yeah, I love with that series. Um, I wanted to try and shake up our normal formula by inviting guests and like the musicals episode. I mean, you, you shouted out a lot and that is probably the one where that, where like bringing in guests worked as, um, like We've had a lot of good guests, but I think that that episode is like where that worked the best that as, as intended. Cause like my intention was always to bring in some expert on a related topic and we could not have gotten a better expert for musical theater than Ben. Yeah. It was incredibly scholarly. Like musicals are, uh, it's a part of my area. If you listen to last week's episode, I talked about how I'm not great at horror movies. Musicals. I also don't have a big interest in. I like, some of them I don't like some of them but I don't really search out them so it's a big blind spot mm-hmm. and I went into the first episode uh I can't remember which one was into the woods the first one that you did of the two I believe it was into the woods first and then the last five years okay yeah which, which so my memory's right so I I went to this being like oh I hated into the woods I really didn't like that movie it was so annoying but I'm really liking this series so I'll listen to it anyways so I listened to it and the amount of knowledge and backstory that Ben was able to bring in and sort of completely set the table of, hey, this is what this is all based on. This is how it was originally performed. This is what they wanted to do with the movie. This is what they had to do with the movie. This is how it was received and all that sort of stuff. It, was just, it just sort of blew my mind completely that Ben was able to have all of this information and explain it in a way that sound like the best podcast sound when you put them on you're like wow i learned something new today and so when you said afterwards hey do you want to come on for the next five years episode and he's like sure i'm like oh i can't wait to listen to it i think i listened to it right away afterwards <laughs> and it was the exact same thing where i didn't know i i only heard of this movie i didn't know anything about it i'd only heard of it and he gives the entire history of steven stonheim and everything and all that sort of stuff it's just like oh my god like it just blew my mind that episode Mm-hmm. When when uh, we usually have the video on while re- while we're recording, for both of those episodes, he had like books that he was showing us too. Like <laughs> it was all sourced and worked out. It, and like it's literally what he went to school for. He is actually mm-hmm. a scholar on this stuff. Yeah, it's it's at the point where like I've been 
looking through, especially because we do the recurring ser- series that we do here is uh, the A24 retrospective, and they haven't done a musical. But if A24 ever does do a musical, he's the first person I'm getting his contact information from you for uh, because I need to have him on this show. Oh, man. So, I mean, first off, I, I hope I can't speak for him, but I hope he would love that. And I personally would love to hear that. <laughs> well, good. I'm I'm glad to hear that. Uh, we I like how you and I have uh, our shows have started to have a bit of crossover with uh, with some different people as well that we're that we're both podcast friends with. I feel like we've got a, a nice little community going. Um, I think I don't know exactly when this episode is going to come out. Uh, that the one we're recording right now, but I believe that. Our next episode, the one that comes out right after this one is going to go up, uh, has our mutual friend Callum McNabb on it. Yeah, which was I'm also super a really excited. fun episode. What uh, what was it for your kicking it with Kendrick series? Yes, it was. We talked okay. about the movie The Day Shall Come. Oh right, I remember you guys talking about that on Twitter. I looked it up. I never heard of it before. Is it a horror movie? No. Okay. It's, uh, I, I actually like when I had, uh, when I reached out to Callum, Callum runs a horror movie podcast, but when I reached out to Callum, um, I said, I think we have the only one or two horror movies kind of already booked, but we can move things around if you want to come on for that. And he's like, no, no need. I want to come on for either table 19 or the day shall come. And I'm like, all right, <laughs> we'll just do that then. He's also such a, a fascinating character. I think he's so smart. And mm-hmm. I, I talked about my aversion to horror, listening to his show, Scare Traducing, which he's been a guest on numerous times. I always walk away having learned something new when I listen to his shows, which is really all you can ask for for a good podcast is that you learn something new when you're mildly entertained for, you know, half an hour to an hour. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, everyone who's listening, go and check out all those cool podcasts and mine. <laughs> Yes, of course. Classic Movies Live. Uh, so yeah, it's just you today. Maybe we'll get Pierre on another time uh, for him to answer these questions as well. But for those unaware of the format, uh, I have the same 10 movie-related questions that I ask each guest just to hear what they have to say. So let's get into this. The very first question I have for you, which is, you know, a little patting myself on the back a bit, but uh, <laughs> how many episodes have you been on of ContraZoom Pod and do you have a favorite of those appearances? So I can't remember if you already said this, but I've, I've been on three, uh, two with Pierre, one alone. Uh, our first one was uh, we came on to talk about Judas and the Black Messiah and the movie Mank. Um, we also came on. This was a really cool one that just happened to work out. Uh, we managed to sort of do a crossover episode where one of you guys' episodes in your A24 retrospective actually nicely fits into our kicking it with Kendrick series because we talked about the movie life after Beth, uh, which features Anna Kendrick in a almost non-existent, but technically their role. Um, and then the last one I came on alone for, Oh boy. To talk about Coda licorice pizza, West side story and Belfast, which was a lot, but like it, you're, you're very good at, uh, at handling like several movies in one episode, which uh, we do not typically do. So it's, <laughs> it's very different for me to do that, but that went really well. I really liked that one. I think um, 
when I come on to these episodes, I really try when I can to make each appearance special in its own way. If I can, because, you know, if I'm a guest on some, on something, I kind of want people to remember me so that they'll come and listen to my show too. Um, I hope that I have been able to do that. Um, and I definitely can think of individual moments from every one of those episodes that I, uh, that I really liked a lot and like think about a lot. But I would have to say probably my favorite, if I had to pick one, is the very first episode we were on uh, where we talked about Judas and the Black Messiah and Mank. I didn't really know what I was doing yet on a guest episode, so I was kind of winging it. But like I had some very strong opinions on things and like I think back on those a lot. Uh, I think I don't know... um, I know it's come up quite a few times on your uh, on your podcast and it's come up a little bit on mine and just in between, you know, with mutual friends, I sort of got a little bit infamous for my rant about the <laughs> best original song Oscar mm-hmm. that uh, in that episode. But also like when I think back on it, uh, just sort of working through trying to play devil's advocate for why Mank should actually like be a real contender for makeup and hair, like got me thinking about uh, how makeup has to work in black and white movies, which is just something that I hadn't really thought about too much before that. So I think back on that a lot as well. Um, And uh, also I just really hated Mank. So like it was really, (laughs) it was really nice to be able to vent about Mank again after our two hour long Citizen Kane episode we'd done before that. Yeah, I'll uh, I'll sort of peel back the curtains a little bit on the three episodes that you you've been on. Uh, I'll go in order, I guess. Obviously, the first episode that you came on, the Juice and the Black Messiah and the Mank one. Yeah, it is. It is. I would consider part of the infamous ContraZoom lore of <laughs> what I I guess I will dub it Jeff's rule, which is uh, or Jeff's law, I guess is a better term for it. Of why the hell are original songs being nominated at the Oscars when they're just end credit songs, when in reality Mm -hmm. they should play an integral part in the plot of the movie, which music often does. But in the case, you Mm -hmm. know, you look at, and usually four out of the five nominees every year are are just end credit songs. And then you have one that... If it's a musical, it comes during the movie or things like that. Every once in a while, you'll get a movie, you'll get a, a movie that has a song where it starts at the end and eventually transitions into being the end credit song or in the sake of something maybe like a James Bond movie, it is the intro song, which I feel also helps set up the movie and the themes. But when it's at the very end, it's usually just some big name celebrity being slapped on for some message song to recap Mm -hmm. the plot. I, uh, I definitely like I've heard, contrary views to my own opinion like some people talking about how they actually do like the end credit song because it can wrap up like a good end credit song will wrap up all the themes of the movie just sort of in a nice little package Mm -hmm. that plays over the credits and that's true a good end credit song will do that i would argue that four out of five end credit songs are not good at doing that yeah yeah i I think I, i talked about it um Sorry, I think I talked about it on the last episode I was on King Richard's end credit song. I believe uh, I believe that the themes that are sung about by Beyonce in that song are directly counter to the movie King Richard. <laughs> yeah, that, that's a fair thing. And and I would I would say to kind of add to that point, uh, 
yeah, no shit. An ending song is supposed to uh, nicely wrap up a movie in its themes. That's the entire purpose of music in general. So yeah, you're, you're just, it's like congratulating you on just showing up for your job. It's like, yeah, that's what you're supposed to do. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, moving on sort of the, the other ones, I love that, um, the, the crossover episode we did, I've never done anything else like that. It worked out so nicely for timing wise, both for your show and for my show. Um, and it was also really fun because we did like a marathon recording session where it was basically like four hours straight. We were recording just four oh, yeah. of us talking, which was a lot of fun. Uh, but it was basically just like, okay, block out my first half of the day because I'm just recording today. Yeah, I mean, and I think we we talked about like, do we want to record it over separate days? And it's like, well, we don't want to use up two of everyone's days. Yeah, we did so, talk about yeah. that, and and that would have been just way more exhausting. And it was just like, you know, we're just going to do this. It's it's just funny though because both of our shows uh, feature someone that lives in British Columbia and someone that lives in Ontario. So no matter what, there is going to be a three hour time difference <laughs> for two of us. Yep. Uh, and then the last one you talked about uh, Coda, Licorice Pizza, West Side Story, and Belfast. How you know covering many movies. It is a bit of a balancing act because, you know, these, these are for my Oscar specials every year. We look at the best picture contenders. Uh, and so we break them up over the course of three to four shows, which means that you're talking about anywhere from two to four movies, depending on how scheduling works out between nomination announcement and the actual ceremony. Uh, Mm-hmm. I have to look at them all and I basically break them down by nomination. So whatever movie has the most nominations will get paired up with whatever movie has the least nominations. And then you have the ones in the middle sort of thing. So I try to make it where, uh, because we talk to every single nomination of the films of their nominated for best picture. I try to do about, uh, 20 nominations per episode, how that gets divvied up. It depends totally on, uh, what movies get nominated, how many things they get nominated for. Right. So it's a bit tricky. Sometimes, you know, things like you, you'd be like, oh, you know, we're, we're spending 15 minutes on a movie. If we're doing a film festival wrap up, we'd be like, all right, we're going to talk about five movies. Each movie only gets about, you know, 10 minutes max sort of thing. Then it becomes a bit trickier mm-hmm. because you some movies you have more things to talk about or not. Whereas on yours, it's much simpler where, hey, for an hour, we're just talking about this one movie. Yeah, which um, is a lot easier to structure like a lot of our episodes i you know sometimes i wish that we had the time to go through and like make uh make episodes with a little more structure research them a little more but also what's nice about our show is me uh i teach at a university and pierre up until recently was a student and I don't know what he's currently doing, but like he literally just graduated. So like (laughs) we're both working on student schedules. So if, you know, if we don't have time to do anything else, but we can still meet up on Saturday, you know, it's enough to have seen the movie. We don't necessarily, obviously the episodes that I like the best are the ones where we do do a lot of prep work for them. But mm-hmm. like we can still produce a good episode without with very minimal prep because we're literally just talking about the movie we saw. Yeah, I, I completely agree. You know, there's a times where you put like hours and hours worth of prep and you have everything, all your notes laid out in front of you. And some of them you just manage to you, you magically work into just a great back and forth conversation. And sometimes those are the most fun episodes. 
I think um, I don't think it's technically up anymore. All of our episodes used to go up on SoundCloud. That SoundCloud went down, so I've been trying to upload them to Spotify, but I've uh, been slacking a bit the last month or two with uploading the old episodes to Spotify. Uh, it will hopefully go up this summer. I think my favorite episode that we've ever done on Classic Movies Live might be our Apocalypse Now episode. I watched Apocalypse Now. I watched three different versions of Apocalypse Now <laughs> and the documentary uh, in preparation for that. And I listened to Kenneth Branagh read the audiobook of Heart of Darkness. So, like, I was very prepared. And, like, that was a really good episode. But also, that's, that's not currently up. Yeah. Well, if that one goes up, make sure you let me know and I'll, I'll have to listen to that for sure. Yes, I will for sure. And I would love it if if one day in the future you and Pierre do a bit of an oral history of Classic Movies Live because you've told me some bits and pieces uh, over our time that we've known each other and it's all very fascinating. I love to, to hear it all in one go. I need to... Uh, I'm actually going to Kelowna and I don't know if Pierre is currently still in Kelowna, uh, but I need to meet up with him at some point here soon because I'm thinking... Right now, all of our episodes are, we're in like season three, whatever that means. That's just however many episodes we want to make it before I decide we're in season four. But like, (laughs) I want the the finale of season three to be exactly that, like an oral history, because um, this is something I haven't really said on our show yet, because it's never really come up. At the beginning of each of our shows, I say that this is Heatwave Radio's Classic Movies Live. Heatwave Radio, I'm pretty sure, no longer exists. And uh, I want to talk about that because that's sort of a whole big deal that would be really nice to get some of the people. It would, it's like, it would be less of an actual oral history of classic movies live and more just an oral history of Heatwave Radio, which, I mean, I hope that's not too university politics for everybody, but like, I think it's important to have that chronicled somewhere. And that's what I would really like to do for a season finale. I love that idea. And I think you would underestimate the amount of people that would find that extremely interesting because some of these episodes where, you know, I like, like not to, to put down these, these episodes down, but I I kind of do this as a bit of a filler. Like, Oh, my schedule isn't working out. I'm rushed. Okay. Let's do a bonus episode. And I get so much great feedback on these better know contributor episodes because so much behind the scenes information comes out and I find that so fascinating and people really respond to that for some reason. So if you do that, I think you'll, you'll be very happy with uh, how that turns out. Uh, I just want to say on that note, I think my favorite episode of ContraZoom, by the way, is your better know a contributor on yourself. That was a very good episode. (laughs) My very self-serving let's do a, a backstory of the podcast one. Well, I mean, I did say it earlier, like when I, I think I might've said it off, off air, but when I'm listening to a lot of your episodes, I'll often like, I mean, I would do this with any podcast, but I just listen to your podcast. Your podcast is one of my regular ones that I listen to all the time. So like, um, when I'm listening to a podcast episode and people ask each other questions, like in my head, I'm trying to also think of like, what would I answer? answer for that question and uh in your better know a contributor episode uh there were a lot of there were a lot of questions that you got asked that i thought i had interesting answers for so not only did i like hearing your answers but like it made me think a lot about um you know my own history with movies and um made me sort of put things into words that i wouldn't have probably done otherwise 
Well, I will, I'll say one last thing about that and then we'll kind of segue back into the questions. The reason why right. that episode kind of stands out a little bit from the other Berno contributors is because I came up with this script and the 10 questions and all that sort of stuff that I, that I supplied to the guests like yourself. I have often talked about a lot of these answers in other shows. And so I don't know if anyone's a frequent listener. Like you obviously say you are, which is amazing. And I'm so thankful that you do, but I don't know anyone else that like, how how many shows have they listened to? Do they listen to every single one? Obviously, so there there has to be some continuity, but at the same time, I can repeat myself a little bit. And several of these questions, I felt like I had repeated myself enough times that it wouldn't be very interesting or exciting for me to just sort of talk about uh, Oscar stuff that if you listen to every year at the Oscars, I usually end up going over that sort of stuff anyways. So it wouldn't be that right. interesting for me or for people that listen. So I gave Rachel the creative leeway to uh, sort of give me some different questions. I said, anything that like would revolve around you, you asking me to name a specific movie. I'd want to know that in advance because I'm not very good at like just coming up with titles uh, on the fly. Uh, so she did that. Mm-hmm. She gave me a few new questions specifically related to movies. And then the rest of them were general, like, tell me a bit about the backstories, that sort of stuff, which I was able to obviously go off of memory. Uh, so that's why that episode's a bit structured a bit differently than these usual ones. But either way, I was still very happy with the way it came out. And I'm, and I'm so happy that you liked it as well and, and hope that it was an entertaining one. Uh, I remember being very sick that day. I think I was quite hungover. And, and so <laughs> it was a real struggle to get through. <laughs> well, it was a great episode. So, Well, thank you. I didn't even notice that you were hungover, so <laughs> well, all worked out. I appreciate that. Uh, I'm going to do now a terrible segue. You had set it up earlier, but now I'm going to bring it all back. Uh, and this is with uh, with a bit of a new question. What made you fall in love with movies, Jeff? So um, the last couple of – most of the times that I've been on your podcast, it's been to talk about – Oscars and the the Oscars and like death racing the Oscars. So, you know, uh, the reason I bring that up is to say I'm a bit of a completionist. Like when it comes to the Oscars, I try and watch every movie that's nominated. Uh, when I got into comics a couple of year, years ago, I read every comic that I could get my hands on, like literally every one. And I went out of my way to find even more so that I could just like w- read all of them. And I got burned out and I haven't read comics in years. And mm-hmm. like, when, uh, you know, when I tried getting into movies early on, I wanted to watch every movie. And that was like an achievable goal at the time, because specifically, like, when I decided that I wanted to, like, start really getting into movies, I was probably like eight or nine. And I lived in Seward, Nebraska. And we have in, in Seward, there's like one small local theater that is, uh, it's owned by Julie. I don't remember her last name, unfortunately. Uh, Wiseheart, I think. Anyway, shout yeah, outs shout to out shout outs to Julie. Yeah, shout outs to Julie at the Rivoli. Um, but they would get like they didn't get a lot of movies because it's like a local theater. But she, but uh, Julie was really good at trying to get like as much as she could and as much new stuff as she could. Like nowadays, you know, if there's ever a blockbuster, it's at the Rivoli. It's at the Rivoli. And, but like, she'd also, she was a film buff herself. So she'd go out of her way to like, try and get whatever she could and just try and get as many movies and always have something new playing. So I was like, okay, I'm going to go and see everything that plays at the Rivoli, uh, which lasted for a bit. But I remember that one day, um, there was a, 
there was one day that um, it was Friday. The movie had just come to the theaters and I was like, I got to go see this, but we're going to some other party in town. And like, I would have to leave early. And like, I couldn't, I couldn't leave early. And I was really sad that day. And like, because I couldn't go and see 13 going on 30, which is like <laughs> not a movie that I norm that nowadays is definitely not a movie I would have sought out. But I'm like, at that time I was like, I need to see every movie. And so, uh, 13 going on 30 is the one that I really remember where it's like, it's just not going to be feasible to see every movie. And then, uh, a couple of months later I went and, uh, still trying to do this, like going to the movies every week, I went and saw the Adam Sandler movie Spanglish. And I hated that movie so much that I came out of it. Like, you know what? I don't think I do have to see every movie. I think I just have <laughs> to see the ones that are good. And mm-hmm. so, uh, my answer to your question is the one, two punch of 13 going on 30 and Spanglish is what made me like really <laughs> crystallize in my mind sort of, or like sort of start thinking in my mind about what, about like, what are good movies? What are movies that I like, I, I want to actually be interested in the movies that I watch because when, when I'm talking about like being a completionist, I'm sure you get this yourself a little bit when you're trying to death race the Oscars Sometimes it feels like you're just going through a checklist. Mm -hmm. And um, when I started feeling that way about movies, I was like, and became conscious of it. I'm like, I don't want to be going through a checklist. I want to see movies because I like movies, but I need to like figure out what I like about movies because, you know, if I go and see Spanglish, if I have to see Spanglish on the first day, if I mentally am in that place where I need to go and see Spanglish on the first day it's out, that's a bad place to be in. I don't want to be there. <laughs> that is a terrific story. And I am, am very glad that, uh, that you said that you had a story to tell. So I'm, that worked out really well. And yeah, I gotta, I, I have to completely agree with you because, you know, we're, I guess we're sort of similar in the same way that we're both a part of the Oscar death racing community, which if you listen to the show, you know what that is, but it's, yeah, sometimes can feel being like, you know, I just got to highlight this last, you know, best hair and makeup Oscar. So that way I can complete this category. And you're like, what am I, what am I doing? Or like best original song. It's the only for the end credit song that we do as, as Paulo calls it the breakthrough award, mm-hmm. stuff like that, where, where sometimes you can, you can feel like you're going a bit neurotic because you're, you're so obsessed with completing it. And so I totally get where you're coming from. And I also sort of feel like when you're first getting into movies, you look at it and be like, oh yeah, I can see all the movies. There's not that many. And you're watching them and you, you're like, yeah, I, I powered through, you know, AFI's top 100 list, or, you know, I've seen uh, the IMDb top 250 or whatever it is. And then as soon as you start going down those rabbit holes, you realize that there's more and more and more you haven't seen because Obviously, there's new stuff coming out all the time, but you're re- you're realizing that certain countries you've never even heard of before suddenly have this rich film history, and you're like, well, I need to learn all about that, and you're getting into that, and then you start like conversing with other film people, and you like will feel inadequate about yourself. You're like, oh man, I haven't seen you know this movie from that country. I'm, I'm such a, a, a movie noob. I don't know anything about it. And then mm-hmm. of course you like talk to a regular person, and you're like, oh yeah, I I just watched this movie. And in your mind, it's like everyone knows this movie. They're like, I've literally don't know anything about this. Never heard of it. Never seen it. Don't know what the poster is. Don't know the actor. Don't know the director. Don't know anything. Sort of like puts yeah. you in check a little bit. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Because like when you start getting that feeling of inadequacy because you haven't seen every single thing, it's like, well, 
the checklist that you're trying to work down is it's infinite. You will never see every single movie. So like, you know, certainly there's definitely when I talk to people and I don't know the the history of movies in Thailand, sure. I'm going to feel a little inadequate there, but like ultimately I don't need to see every movie. I just need to see the ones that are good and like figure out why I'm watching movies in the first place. Mm-hmm. So yeah, yeah, it's just like that way to keep yourself in check a little bit. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that's what Spanglish did to me. <laughs> I love that. Now, you talked about two movies that either weren't for you or you actively disliked. Let's, you know, bring it a little bit more positive and talk about what is your favorite movie of all time? Um, well, I mean, first off, I do just want to clarify, I didn't hate 13 going on 30. It was not <laughs> my kind of movie, but I didn't dislike it. Spanglish, I hate it. But anyway, uh, I think that, like, you've you and also guests have said this plenty of times before favorite movie of all time is a little bit of a difficult question or not so much a difficult question. Uh, Cause I think about this a lot, but it's one that I like don't love getting a lot of times because it's so hard to pick. Um, but also like, because I know that favorite movie is going to be like when people ask you anything about movies, like the first time they hear that you like movies, they're going to be like, mm-hmm. Oh, what's your favorite? Yeah. So it's like, I have an answer prepared. Uh, it's a bit of a cop out answer because I literally can't pick one. I have a, I have a stable of three movies that I like always have as, a, as ready to go for this question. I love it. So, Give it to me. I normally have five at the ready. So three works great. So I have Spider-Man two. The, the Sam Raimi one. Uh, Requiem for a Dream with Jared Leto and Ellen Burstyn. And Redline, which is an anime movie that came out in, I think, 2006. Uh, I haven't watched Spider-Man and uh, Requiem for a Dream in probably a little over a year. But these are all three movies that I, that I do re-watch a lot. Uh, clearly not recently. But... Um, there are three movies that I rewatch a lot. And every time I rewatch them, I'm like, yes, that is still my favorite movie. Cause I'll go through this every little, every now and then and be like, you know, if I want to say that Requiem for a dream is my favorite movie, uh, can I still say that this many years later? And I still can. Mm-hmm. Like the last time I saw it, it was still as good as I remembered it possibly better. Same with Spider-Man too. And then Redline is, Redline is the movie that I've seen most recently of those three. And like every time I watch it, I like it more. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with it, but it is, um, man, it's such a blast. It's probably the best looking movie I've ever seen. Yeah, I, I've actually never heard of it. And I'm trying to look it up and there's so many movies called Redline that I can't find it. So uh, I'm going to talk a little bit about Redline now because it makes one of my later answers on this list that you sent me much easier uh, because okay. then I don't have to talk about Redline. Uh, so Redline is uh, it's directed by Takeshi Koike. And I can actually send you a sound clip where they literally just say directed by Takeshi Koike because it's like the on- that's one of the only English parts of the whole. Well, most of the soundtracks in English, but most of it's nonsense. But like that's part of the soundtrack that they actually say that in the beginning. Directed by Takeshi Koike. But anyway, uh, Redline is, it's an animated movie that took about seven years to make because uh, if you finally do find pictures of it, it's like the slickest looking movie I've ever seen. And yet every single frame of it is hand painted. 
Like it looks, it looks better. It looks better and almost more digital than most current digital movies. And yet all of it is like analog. They painted every single thing of it. And it is such an active movie. Every single frame of that movie, there's like 50 things happening on screen, but it never becomes like, it's, it's enough where like you always, there's always something more you can get out of the scene, but it's never uh, overwhelming, at least not like overwhelming to the point where you stop being able to follow the movie. Because it's a very high energy movie. It's basically wacky races, but as an anime, because the whole point of the movie is uh, you have a bunch, it's a bunch of, uh, it's a bunch of, it's, it's a space race on like a literal race of cars on a planet uh, in space where all of the, um, all of the drivers are just like big characters, like in wacky races, like, you know, even the even the couple of racers that are barely in the movie have fully developed personalities. They have like intro scenes. They have an entire backstory. And so it's just like all of these weird characters in a race and the whole movie is just the race. And it is uh, and it's got like the best soundtrack I've ever heard. It's one of the best looking movies I've ever seen. And it is basically perfectly directed because like I said, there's always more to discover. And like, there's not only is there always more to discover, every frame has so much going on in it, but never to the point where you get exhausted just looking at it. Like at the end of the movie, I always feel like I just, I I always feel like my heart just like, I, I always feel like my heart is still pumping like 400 beats per minute because it's just that high adrenaline. But throughout the whole movie, I never am feeling like I never like shut down because there's too much going on. It's uh, it hits that balance perfectly. It's like right on the line and yellow line, which is the intro to that. The intro <laughs> song to that movie, which is like 10 minutes long is my favorite song I have ever heard in a movie. Oh, wow. Okay. Well, I looked it up, and you can watch it for free in Canada on Tubi or on Plex if you have uh, if you have that server, uh, and they they stream movies there for free as well. So, and, or you can rent uh, it from Apple TV. I would, uh, if I can make a suggestion to anyone hearing this who wants to watch Redline, I would definitely recommend renting it or watching it on in some way, like be that rent probably renting. I just know that Tubi has ads. I would mm-hmm. not recommend watching that movie with ads because once it starts, it doesn't stop. And having like any stops for commercials would be a real downer. It wouldn't ruin the movie. It would just be like a little, it would just be annoying. And like, you shouldn't be annoyed while watching that movie. Yeah. Okay. That's, that's fair enough. I, I like, I'm definitely intrigued by that. But moving on to the next question talking about you you try to watch every movie that came through your town what would be a movie that you are embarrassed to say that you've never seen potentially embarrassingly i have a lot of blind spots actually uh this is going to come up in an in an upcoming question here uh but there's a lot of movies that like everyone's seen that i just never have and uh the one that the movie that I'm going to say for this question is Jaws. Somehow I have oh. never seen Jaws. I don't know how, wow. but like it's just never happened. Okay, yeah, that's interesting. I adore that movie. I've, I've talked about my love of it several times on this show, so it would come as no surprise for there. Uh, but yeah, I'm uh, I, I'm a big fan of it. And 
Yeah, it's it sucks because every time you you reluctantly admit, oh yeah, I've never seen it. The response from the person is, oh well, you got to watch it. So I'm gonna I'm gonna avoid doing that, even though I will say it's a very great film. Well, that and that and Jurassic Park are two movies I gotta watch here soon. Wow. I've seen. I I mentioned it on the last episode that released. Uh, I've seen all three of the new Jurassic World movies, all of which I have disliked. But like, <laughs> I've. I've seen most of the rest of the other movies, like the most of the rest of the movies, like the first trilogy, but I don't actually remember if I've sat, if I've like sat through one front to back and seen the whole thing. I know that I have seen probably the entirety of Jurassic Park in pieces, like from watching it on TV when it would come on or from Mm -hmm. walking in on other people watching it, but I've never actually sat down and watched the whole thing and I would like to because the bits and pieces that I've seen have convinced me that it is probably one of the greatest movies of all time. I just haven't actually <laughs> seen it. Yeah, it, it's definitely one of those movies where you've probably watched it through osmosis because you'll see clips of it all the time at different award shows or examples on YouTube videos of like uh, great use of suspense and what have you and just catching it on TV here and there. I, it wouldn't surprise me if you probably have seen, you know, 80, 90% of the movie, just not in one chunk. I could probably think of a bunch of movies that throughout my life I had been like that as well. Mm-hmm. All right, so now moving on to, once again, talking more positively about things. Who is your favorite director? Well, based on the last, uh, based on the last answer, it's definitely not Steven Spielberg. That's not true. <laughs> I do love Steven Spielberg. I just haven't seen nearly all of his movies. You just haven't seen um, his two biggest and best films. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> so um, I wrote down for this one that this is another question that's really hard for me to answer because... Uh, while I do try and have uh, try to have an answer ready for a question like "What's your favorite movie?" Um, I don't, I like don't really care that much about having like a favorite. I don't actually care that much about having a favorite movie or a favorite director or a favorite actor. And like, I do have those things probably, but I don't like think about it a lot. So I actually don't know a. I don't know if the answer that I'm going to give for this question is definitive. Like this could probably change in a couple of weeks because I just don't think about this enough. This is the first time that I've had to like actually put this question into my head in words and try and get something out. Um, And uh, more than that, there's a lot of actors and directors that I follow basically religiously anyway, but I would struggle to say that they're my favorite. For example, Steven Spielberg. Anytime I see that Steven Spielberg has a new movie coming out, I will watch that movie. It's hard for me to say that he's my favorite, though, because clearly I have so many like blind spots within his filmography. Um, so uh, when I'm thinking about this, I would have to say that um, at the moment, I think I can sort of like tie down one specific director as my favorite or like pair of directors, actually. And it may be, uh, I may be a little, um, this may be a little bit unreliable because I recently saw Everything Everywhere All at Once and it's like my favorite movie of the year and it is inching its way towards my favorite movie, towards my list of favorite movies of all time. So I'm going to go with Daniels here because one, I actually have seen all of their feature length movies and um, I find that they're able to give like, 
that same um, kind of high energy sense of wonder that like a Marvel movie always goes for, or like a big budget superhero superhero movie in general will always try and do, but like maybe, you know, but they're also able to mix it with like the more, uh, like the substance that a lot of indie movies have. And I find that like when I watch indie movies, like if I watch just indie movies, there's lots that I like, but there's very few that like are indie movies, but feel like blockbusters. And with blockbusters, there's like very few blockbusters that I've watched that like feel as deep as a lot of the indie movies that I've seen. And I think that Daniels are almost consistently able to hit that exact balance where their movies feel as much of a spectacle as something much bigger, like an Iron Man or a Spider-Man while also having as much depth as uh, something like a Nomadland. Nomadland is a weird comparison here, but like they're also able, there's just a lot going on both visually and like, I guess, emotionally everything, everywhere, all at once. I'm pretty sure that me and my mom both cried during that movie. Like there's so much, there's so much to digest in that. And uh, I know you've talked about you've you've mentioned me and de- the death of Dick Long in the same sentence on this podcast before that movie. Mm-hmm. I've only seen it once I got to rewatch it, but that movie struck such a chord with me because um, I uh, I grew up in the Midwest in the States. So, like, I'm very partial to movies about the Midwest that I guess, for lack of a better term, get it right. And the death of Dick Long is like one of the best movies about the Midwest that I've seen that isn't Cars. Like, Cars is really good in that respect, but, like, I don't like Cars as much as I feel like I should like Cars for that that reason. But The Death of Dick Long, like, gets everything right. It's really funny. It's, like, really good. And um, it has Nickelback, like, used well, (laughs) which is awesome. So, Daniels. I'm going to say Daniels. And with the caveat that that may change even at a moment's notice, but they're always going to be up there. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. That's a really unique pick. I feel for me, they don't have enough of a filmography for me to like fully be on board and be like, yeah, they're my favorite. But uh, of the two movies of theirs I've seen, Swiss Army Man and Everything Everywhere, I've loved them both. And so that puts them in the conversation of if they have a movie, new movie coming out, I'm definitely seeing it category. Yeah, exactly. And I think that I also did sort of say, and I would stand by it, that like, that's right now. I yes. if, if Daniels released four movies tomorrow, I would be in the theater all day tomorrow because I love them right now. And like, I'm not going to not love them, but exactly the same thing as you just said. Like, they don't really have enough of a filmography where it feels right calling them my favorite directors, but... I don't know. This is a weird question. So I'm going to go with a weird answer. Okay. Well, I like it. Now, the next question is one I believe that you were alluding to earlier with some blind spots. But uh, so it's kind of a two part, but we'll start with the first part. Uh, what was your favorite best picture winner? Yeah. So this is one where I definitely have a lot of blind spots. Um, there's actually an easy answer for this because it's Parasite. Parasite is one of my favorite movies. It is definitely my favorite best picture winner. And, um, but when I'm thinking of how to answer the question of favorite best picture winner, I haven't seen 
enough. I don't think I've seen enough best picture winners where I feel comfortable grading that specifically on like, just compare, which is my, which is my favorite movie that was also a winner of a best picture winner. Now in, in the case of Parasite, that's, that's it anyway. But I tried to think more of this question, like, um, because over the last couple of years, I've gotten more into the the race and like the lead up to best picture. So not only is Parasite my, be- my favorite best picture winner because it won best picture and is a movie I liked. I also like when I'm thinking of favorite best picture winner, I'm thinking of like, what happened? What was that like the night that I, uh, that I watched Parasite win best picture? Like what was going through my head? What was like the whole experience like? And um, so that's how I chose to answer this question. When Parasite won Best Director, uh, I was actually hosting a um, an Oscars party at the local at the student pub, and I was getting very drunk by this point. But when Best when it won Best Director, uh, I literally fell out of my seat and made a mess with the beer I was holding because, like, <laughs> I one I was so shocked, but also uh, I only had three of the. Uh, three of the legs of the chair were uh, were on the ground and one of them was like hovering over the, over the ground because it was on a, like a tiny little elevated stage and there wasn't enough room. So like that was when the chair gave out was literally when Parasite won Best Director. And, uh, but also when Parasite won Best Director, that was the moment where I'm like, Parasite could win Best Picture. And then when it actually did win Best Picture, I ran around the whole bar. I was like cheering. Uh, people probably weren't too enthused with me, but there was a lot of cheering going on in that bar. People did like that. Anyway, it was like a whole big experience. And like, that was, it was just like such a fun moment. So when I'm thinking of favorite best picture winner and least favorite best picture winner, which is the next question, I'm trying to think of like, what was it like to be there when that best picture, when that best picture win happened? Totally. I I agree with what you're saying. And and that's a great story. And it, ties in nicely to a, a good personal memory for you. So I'm glad that you were able to answer the question in a way that was still sufficient and feels like you're answering the question to the best of your ability, because I get it. There's a little over 90 movies that have won best picture. You know, a lot of them get derided right after they win of how the hell did this movie win best picture? So it doesn't really stay in the sort of the cultural zeitgeist anymore of caring about it. Like no one cares about driving Miss Daisy anymore. When, when you're trying to go back and fill in your, your blind spots, you're not like, Oh man, I got to see driving Miss Daisy at one best picture. It's like, Ooh mm-hmm. yeah, that one, be- one best picture. I, uh, I'll skip it if I can sort of thing. So I, I totally yeah, get where exactly. you're coming from. Unless you're crazy like me and force yourself to watch every single best picture winner. I mean, eventually I am going to go through that checklist. I just haven't made it yet. Mm-hmm. And and shout out to another podcast, Once Upon a Time at the Oscars, who are going through every nominated Best Picture, which is, which is an insane, insane thought. Yeah. I love it, though. I, yeah. I love that concept, and I haven't listened to all of their episodes, but the ones I have have been very good. So please go listen to them as well. Yeah, they're 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 really great. I really like them. We um, I did an ad swap with them, so you've probably heard their commercial before. Uh, and I would love to get. Oh wait, no, they did come on for one show, one of the Oscar specials. Kyle Mary Lee. Wow, I'm, I can't believe I I'm forgetting that they actually came on <laughs> the <laughs> Drive My Car episode. Yes, you're right. The Drive My Car episode. Wow, thank you for remembering my own show better than I know, Jeff. <laughs> 
<laughs> oh boy. Uh, but yes, Kyle and Mary Lee are excellent. They have a very terrific show. Um, but now to the second part of this question that I'm sure is going to be an, just as interesting of an answer is what is your least favorite best picture winner? It's actually not as interesting of an answer because uh, I can't think of any movie that's I actually can't think of any movie that's like one best picture where I was physically angry about it or where I was like going off or anything. It's just like, you know, when at least so far in my experience, when a movie wins best picture that I really, really liked, that's awesome. When a movie doesn't win, like when a movie wins best picture that I didn't like so far, I haven't had like a visceral reaction to that yet. It's just been like, Oh, that's disappointing. And that's the case with green book. So like uh, it's green book. Um, when I watched the Oscars that, uh, where Green Book won, I, um, watched that at home and Green Book won and, uh, that was fine. I mean, it wasn't Black Klansman, which was my favorite, like, nominee and the one I was super cheering for. But, like, when Green Book won, I remember I'd seen it and at the time I didn't, like, I didn't really hate it. I've since gone back and watched it and my opinion of it has soured more. But even then, like, it's just not a good movie. It's not like, I don't hate it as much as some people do. And it's just it's just sort of a disappointing win. Um, in kind of the same wheelhouse, I guess, how green was my valley. But clearly I wasn't <laughs> at those Oscars. But it's just that, like, <laughs> when I look through the couple of movies I've seen from that year that were also up for Best Picture, uh, Citizen Kane and the Maltese Falcon are such... Mm-hmm huge classics that it's just weird to me that how green was my valley one and i've watched it and again it's fine there's nothing wrong with it it's just not like it's not citizen kane and so that's definitely the kind of thing where i think like you know the oscars get it wrong sometimes because the oscars aren't trying to pick enduring classics that we're going to remember in 70 years or at least they're not picking those. They're picking what was the best movie at the time. And you really get, that's why like looking back at Oscars and especially what like Kyle and Mary Lee are doing, looking back at all the nominations is really interesting because you get sort of an idea of what tastes are like at the time. Because mm-hmm. like, I think in 50 years, probably, probably no one's even going to remember how infuriating it was when Green Book won. Like I don't, again, I was just a little disappointed. A lot of people hated that so much. That's probably not going to be that big of an issue in 50 years. Green Book just isn't going to be a movie that endures that long, I don't think. And like, maybe people will look back on that year and be like, wow, how did Black Klansman not win? That's an actual classic now. I don't know if that's Mm -hmm. the case. But like, you know, it's the Oscars get it wrong sometimes when they're trying to pick classics. Yeah, I, I I agree with both of the movies you sort of pick there and, and all your rationale. Uh, anytime someone says to me that they love Green Book, it always sort of makes me question their movie taste a little bit, where I'm like, I get it. I probably hate it more than some people do. The performances are, are, are really solid. It's just there's so many script issues for me that it's hard to get over that. But anytime someone's like, oh, yeah, I love Green Book, I'm just like, Really? Why? But why? Like that that famous like Ryan Reynolds gif of him being like, but why when he's in uh, Van Wilder or whatever that was, or Harold and Kumar. I can't remember what yeah. it is. But it's just like, but why? Why do you love that movie? <laughs> mm-hmm. 
And I'm glad you shouted out How Green Was My Valley because I, I do actively really hate that movie. That movie oh, wow. is just so ridiculous for me. For me, it, it was near the bottom of my, my rankings of uh, when I ranked all the best picture winners. Oh, wow. I just thought it was like, I don't know. I think that How Green Was My Valley was probably the perfect movie for Oscar voters at the time. Because oh, if probably. I think back to, yeah, if I think back to around that time and more specifically a little later, like a little bit later than that was the era of like grand epics in movies that like just span like an entire lifetime and you get the whole history of the town. And that's what green, how green was my Valley was. And like, it's just so boring. Like there's not that much interesting about it. It's just, it's a big grand story, but it's a big grand story about what, like a kid in a coal mining town. Like who cares? (laughs) Yes. It's boringness is mostly what offended me. Yeah. All right, here's one that I'm very curious to hear about uh, because I know you'll sometimes watch some truly god-awful movies for no reason at all, but uh, what was the last movie you walked out of or turned off? I am pretty good at not walking out of or turning off movies. Like, if I turn something on, I'm going to commit to it. Uh, And so I actually can't... So, like, I actually can't think of an answer that's in the spirit of this question. Like there haven't been any movies that I can think of where I've like actively walked out of them. I've always finished the movie or there have probably been movies that I've turned off and never turned back on, but I actually can't remember them because the main reason that I'll turn off a movie like that is because I am incredibly bored. And um, I think the most, the most recent movie that this happened with is also one that I fully intend on finishing. I just like, I started it when I should have been working and I st- and I was like five minutes in and I'm like, no, I need to be working actually. So I turned it off and I didn't go back to it. It was Deep Water with uh, Ben mm. Affleck and Anna de Armas. I've heard it's really bad, um, but it has Tracy Letts in it and uh, it sounds really entertainingly bad. So I do plan on finishing it. I just haven't got around to it because it's also two hours long. And like, I mean- You've said I sit through a lot of bad movies. You're right. It's just like, do I want to devote two hours of my life to a movie that I know I will not enjoy earnestly? Like I might ironically enjoy it. It might be funny bad, but I know it's not going to be good. And like, maybe I'll be surprised and I actually didn't know and it was good, but like I'm expecting to hate it. It's hard for me to find that two hours to go back to it. I, I I agree with you. And that was one that I, I was so curious about. And when it dropped, I was like, oh, yeah, I got to set some time aside to watch this movie. And then just like the reviews kept pouring in about how much of a hot mess it was. Like it, it's like it's one <laughs> of those like, how the hell did this movie get made type of th- deals? Right. So I, I probably won't end up going back to ever watching it. But uh, hopefully you do. and <laughs> You can figure out just how bad this movie is. Well, what I will mention is that Deep Water is the second adaptation of the Patricia Highsmith novel Deep Water. So you can actually do a make-remake on it. Oh, interesting. Okay. Well, when was the original one? I think it's a French movie, also called Deep Water, but like Deep Water in French. (laughs) Yeah, I probably won't end up doing a make-remake on it just because of the fact that uh, this movie kind of came and gone and neither of them are well known enough. I have to be a bit picky with the ones I choose for the make remake series, because mm-hmm. if I choose a bad 
pairing, just no one listens to it, which is a shame. Yeah, for sure. Uh, so they, it either has to be super topical or it has to be like a well-regarded classic. Yeah, for sure. Um, I'm just looking at what it was. Uh, in 1981, Michel Deville made a movie called Eau Provence, which is deep water in French. That was the first adaptation of this. I don't know if either of them is good because I haven't seen either of them. And like, neither of them is topical. So by all means, like, I might just use that idea at some point. Do it. I, I give you full permission <laughs> to steal it. All right. Thank you. <laughs> all right. Moving on. What is an underrated movie that you think more people need to see? So uh, this is where I was saying um, I was going to talk about Redline if I didn't talk about it earlier. So I don't have to talk about Redline, which is good because I actually wrote down three. Uh, so I'm going to write. I'm going to talk about the first one that I wrote down which is Bad Times at the El Royale. Um, I don't know what the critical reception to this one was, but I know that like no one saw it. Uh, I remember I was really excited for it because it looked like a stylish Quentin Tarantino-esque movie, and I think it was directed by Drew Goddard. I'd have to check. Mm -hmm. Um, Yep, it was. Okay, yeah, directed by Drew Goddard. So I was like, that's interesting. I didn't know he did movies. And then it looked like a stylish, like, Quentin Tarantino-esque neo-noir. And uh, I was blown away by it. I was so happy with that movie. Uh, it's a it's a movie about several characters who wind up in this, um, in the El Royale, which is a basically out of, it's a basically out of business motel. Like clearly they didn't realize it was out of business because they all wind up there because they need a place to stay. But like it hasn't had guests in years and the only person that's still there is like a really finicky um, little kid who turns out to actually be a war vet. Um, but like, he's not even sure what he's doing there. And the movie, as it as the central mystery of the movie unravels, it's like, I actually can't remember exactly what the central mystery is because it goes in so many directions and ends up being like a, uh, a Manson family thing, which mm-hmm. has, my favorite part of the movie, which is Chris Hemsworth actually as a villain, which I have never seen him in a villain role before or since. And he knocks it out of the park so hard in this movie because like um, he's super charismatic. And so you understand why people would follow him, but he's extremely creepy. He's like basically a horror villain when he actually shows up. And I think it's, it's put together so perfectly that in the first act, even though Chris Hemsworth never shows up on screen, you always feel his character's presence. And he's always like this looming danger alongside a bunch of other things that probably should be looming dangers. Cause I think there's like, I think there's like a CIA plot involved and one or two of the people that are there are actually spies. And one person is just like on her way, like she's on her way to do a concert, but like, as the night goes on, it starts to become, it starts to look less and less likely that she'll even survive the night. So there's so much going on. And yet throughout this first act, the most terrifying thing is that eventually we're going to see this cult leader who's played by Chris Hemsworth. And when he actually comes in, he's such a good villain that like, I'm honestly sad. I've never seen Chris Hemsworth in a villain role since, but like maybe he just needed the one. But if anyone who hasn't seen it, I recommend it for Chris Hemsworth's performance alone. The rest of the movie is also really good, but he is terrifying. It's one of the like most terrifying villains in recent memory I can think of. 
Yeah, I I agree with you there. That's such an interesting movie because I remember when it came out, I was super excited for it because the cast looked amazing. The trailer was really put together and that's and usually once you watch enough movie trailers and enough movies, you can kind of sort of glean is this movie actually going to be good or is it just a good trailer? And you can like, tell when wow. the trailer's lying to you. Yes, exactly. And so I was very intrigued by it. And then when it came out, it actually was getting pretty bad reviews overall. The word of mouth of it was was pretty bad. Critics were like, oh, it's it's bloated. It's confusing. It doesn't know what it wants to be, all this sort of stuff. I was like, oh, man, that's really disappointing. I was so excited for it. So I forgot about it, didn't watch it. And then like a year or two later, my wife and I were like, let's uh, let's try to find some like neo noirs or like some crime movies or you know some modern thrillers and things like that. We're like, all right, yeah, yeah, let's let's do that. So we're googling different lists and Bad Times at the El Royale came up and we're like, do we want to give this a shot? We were kind of interested back in the day. We'll just give it a shot. And like you said, it just sort of blew me away. Drew Goddard is most famous for directing Cabin in the Woods before this, and in sort of similar movies that were not really appreciated in their time, but afterwards people were able to go back and be like, holy crap, what was this? How come this wasn't a bigger deal? This should have been like the number one movie of like the month or whatever at the box office. Everyone should have been going to see this. Mm-hmm. And it just sort of is forgotten. And like, yeah, the amount of times that like I, I tell people about bad times of the L Royale and they're like, I, w- w- sorry, what are you saying? What's <laughs> at the L the what? And you're, you have to like explain it slowly what the title is the incredibly stacked cast it has the fact that it's yeah it is a thriller but it's also kind of funny and it's kind of sad it's got some really great music in it and all this sort of stuff that like makes it really hard to market a movie when you've got like all these clashing genres but like as a movie lover you're like who cares i don't care if it's a comedy and a thriller you can be both things at once and i'll enjoy it i mean it might be partially because i also listen to uh, as it happens on occasion on cbc but uh, that movie starts with the movie uh, with the song 25 miles to go, which still gets stuck in my head like all the time. It's also that's the 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 as it happens theme for people that listen to CBC is a version of 25 miles to go. Yeah. So definitely more people should check it out. Thanks for suggesting Absolutely. that. I co-sign that. But, you know, you're already infamous for having Jeff's Law. I very much need to know what is an unnecessary or necessary hot take you have about a movie. Oh man. I was really thinking about this because I'm not, I'm not sure. I'm trying to think like, is there any specific movie that I just want to like tell people is actually not good? And I don't know. I think um, I'm going to, I'm going to basically use this as a soapbox for something that's been bothering me today, which is, Probably not something I need to tell any of your audience. I'm sure all of your audience is probably already on my side on this. But I think it's very, very silly to talk about. I think the discourse around like superhero movie ratings is very silly. Um, When I say superhero movie ratings, I, I don't just mean superhero movies. I think that's where it comes up the most. But I'm talking specifically about the uh, MPAA ratings of movies, like rated R, rated T, rated NC-17, whatever those are. It came up today with the movie Blonde. Um, most of the discourse around the movie Blonde that I've seen hasn't been about 
the actors or anything in the movie. It's been about the fact that it's NC-17. So, oh gosh, what what is it that makes it NC-17? And like, boy, I bet that means it's going to be good. And it, it doesn't. I mean, it is definitely interesting what it could be that made the MPAA decide this is not a movie that should be seen at all. But like, that doesn't mean it's good. That doesn't mean that it's bad. It doesn't mean anything. It's literally just it's literally just a stamp of disapproval from the American, like from American theaters. And like Mm -hmm. the reason I bring that up, um, like it came up today with blonde, but it comes up every couple, every couple of months with superhero movies. Like people say, we need more R rated superhero movies. It's like, no, we need more good superhero movies. Like, (laughs) uh, joke. I mean, I don't like Joker that much. I think it's fine, but I don't think it's very good, but like Joker, I guess like, in some objective sense, Joker's not bad. There's a lot of good stuff in it, but the good stuff isn't there because it's rated R. Like the fact that Joker is rated R and one of my favorite movies, Logan is rated R. Those aren't the reasons they're good. They're good because they're good stories that were well adapted with like good actors playing characters that like they're clearly passionate about and directors doing their job. Well, well, not in the case of Joker, but in the case of Logan, for <laughs> sure. Um, and like, that's what we need more of when it comes to superhero movies is good superhero movies. A superhero movie can be good or a movie in general can be good and be rated G. A, a movie can be bad and be rated R. The fact that Deadpool 3 might be rated PG-13 doesn't make a lot of sense with what you would normally want to do with that character, but that wouldn't mean that it would be bad. That's a contrived example. I'm pretty sure Disney has specifically said that Deadpool 3 will be rated R when it comes out. But it's like the rate, the MPAA rating of a movie doesn't matter. And I guess that's, mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure that most listeners of your podcast will be more or less on board with that opinion. But it's a thing, it's a thing that I see so often that I'm like, I don't know. It kind of needs to be said, and I hope that anyone who has that who has that opinion, I hope that if there's anyone listening to this that does have that, that opinion, I have made them think about that a little more, because I also think that I'm probably not reaching the audience that needs to hear that with this. Yeah, I I, I agree, because, you know, when you're talking to, to movie buffs who, you know, a, a rating is literally a number or a letter next to a movie, where if you're going to see as much as you can regardless it doesn't do anything to you what i think is is sort of an interesting conversation then becomes what do we learn in advance when we when a, a rating is revealed so you know you're talking about deadpool where we've come to sort of expect you know he's got a foul mouth he's going to swear a lot he's going to make sex jokes potty jokes uh there's going to be lewd gestures or might be some nudity things like that so we we have that idea in our head after the first two and if we hear that for whatever reason they've decided to go with the pg-13 cut you've sort of completely changed the way that this character's already been established and what have you the Mm -hmm. flip side also being if you hear martin scorsese is doing a new gangster movie and He's cast Robert De Niro and Al Pacino and whoever else you you want to imagine and Leonardo DiCaprio and they're all in this big gangster epic movie, but the studio is demanding certain cuts and so now it is going to be rated PG thirteen. I would then go, well, why is that? What what is happening that this is happening? Because we're used to knowing that uh, 
Scorsese deals a lot with with violence, with swearing, mm-hmm. with taboo subject matters and things like that. And if he, his movie is being rated PG-13, that means those elements aren't there. And when that's sort of the field that he normally works in, you sort of question why. And and yeah, the interesting part with, with Blonde getting an NC-17 is so few movies get NC-17 because it's basically the kiss of death. Luckily, because this is a Netflix movie, it doesn't matter because in the United States – no theater, big theater chain will show an NC-17 movie because they're too scared about showing it, mm-hmm. uh, worrying about who's going to come to see it. Whereas in Canada, because we have a slightly different rating system and how we grade things, an NC-17 movie in the U.S. is just an R for us. So it, right. like, it's like, great, you're one of now five R-rated movies playing in the Cineplex this week. It makes no mm-hmm. difference to us. But in the U.S., it's so taboo and so weird and so out there. And so I understand why the discourse is there. It's just like, I agree with you. It's just very funny why it's happening and maybe not necessarily um, being talked about from the right angles. That's exactly it. It's just the angle. The angle that I see is often we need more R rated things because R rated means good. And it doesn't. Mm -hmm. It's, the things that often make those stories the ones we want to see, like the thi- Logan is good for a lot of reasons. It's also very bloody and like there's foul language in it. It's like a very bleak movie and the ways in which it is bleak kind of necessitate in for the MPAA that it would be rated R. And so it gets that R rating. It's not good because it's rated R it's good and also it's rated R. And yeah, mm-hmm. the discourse around that, around those ratings, um, like it is interesting what we can learn in advance of those. Because you're right. If I hear that Martin Scorsese is making a movie and it's been rated PG, I'm like, what? But, um, you know, it's basically the, the thing that bothers me sometimes is when the rating is associated with a like when the when the rating when the rating angle is associated with this means good this means bad it's like no it means bloody or it means sexual or it means whatever mm-hmm. that is completely separate from quality yeah and i think to sort of tie it back to the the marvel sort of stuff uh doctor strange in the multiverse of madness originally had a different director scott derrickson who did the first one who had mostly done horror movies was tasked with doing the second doctor strange And he ended up leaving because, if I'm remembering correctly, he wanted to take the movie to be scarier than what it eventually ended up being. And Marvel and Disney weren't comfortable with that. And so he decided to leave on his own volition of, this is compromising my artistic vision. As someone who mostly deals in the horror realm, trying to make a Marvel movie horror is a bit of a tougher sell. Obviously, they brought in Sam Raimi, who has that ability to both A, direct horror movies, and B, direct big-budget superhero movies, and sort of was able to combine them both. And I haven't seen it yet, so I can't really comment on the quality of it, but people seem to really be enjoying it. But yeah, I remember when they first announced it, they were announcing Multiverse of Madness as being a pure horror movie, Mm -hmm. which would have necessitated probably an R rating. Yeah, and actually, you saying that does make me much more excited for Scott Derrickson's uh, movie that's coming out next week called The Black Phone, which I fully intend to see as soon as I can. It's probably going to be in three weeks, but still. Um, But yeah, I think without spoiling anything for you, because there is definitely a chance that you'll watch Doctor Strange sometime soon. um, Yes. It is... I think that Sam Raimi is... 
Sam Raimi has, he, he seems to know how to both do something that plays with his horror sensibilities and also that Marvel will sign off on because he's able to get away with a lot, but like you can see why he didn't get away with more. No, that makes perfect sense. And and I understand sort of why he was sort of brought in for this because he is one, probably one of the very few people who are, are able to sort of straddle the horror slash popcorn feature slash comedy slash action and sort of meld all those worlds together. It's it's a very tight rope to walk. Mm-hmm. Maybe someone like Edgar Wright with his history of stuff like uh, Shaun of the Dead and Hot Fuzz, which both have horror elements. But then again, he was also supposed to direct the original Ant-Man and he left due to creative differences too. <laughs> oh, watching the original Ant-Man was... I, I didn't I didn't hate the final product, but like when you're watching that movie, I can't identify exactly what was Edgar Wright's and what was not. But there's a couple of spots in that movie where like there's a joke that's being set up and when it's delivered, it just doesn't land. And I think like I'll bet this was in the original script and I'll bet that Edgar Wright knew exactly how to do it in his head and he left before he got the chance. And then when I think Peyton Reed took over. Mm-hmm. He had the he had the joke he had the setup, but because he's not Edgar Wright and didn't write the joke, he couldn't deliver it the, as effectively as Edgar Wright would have. That's a fascinating subject. I'm so glad that that was what your hot take was, and and I feel like that's something that's been percolating in my mind for a while, but I've never really had a chance to articulate it at all. So thank you for bringing that up. You're welcome. Thank you for giving me the opportunity. But that uh, that wraps up our uh, our episode today. Uh, Jeff, thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, what have you been working on and where can people find your show? Okay, so uh, when I finish talking here, I'm going to go back to editing our episode on uh, of, of Kicking It With Kendrick, where we talk about a simple favor for damn near the length of the movie. Um, it's a really good episode, uh, but it's also one that I left to the last minute. So, and, but it's what, because like it technically came out before this episode came out. So uh, hopefully people have already heard it. Anyway, that's what I'm currently <laughs> working on. We're getting close to the end of uh, the, the current end of our series, kicking it with Kendrick over on classic movies live over on the, over on Spotify. So that will probably be wrapping up in July. Um, and I'm very excited about how some of the episodes so far have turned out. Uh, well, I mean, I like every episode of that, but, uh, there's, I, I always like, I always kind of dread having to edit stuff because I just hate editing, but it's always so fun to like go back and re and edit those episodes. Cause I, uh, I, they're good discussions and I like, like listening back to them. So I would definitely recommend those. And also on our main show, we've, um, I'm not sure what the next movie we're talking about is, but we've been talking about basically all the big releases that have come out. We talked about Jurassic Park, which was actually or Jurassic World Dominion, which is actually such a funny episode. Like I'm I'm really excited about how that one turned out. Uh, I would definitely recommend that. And um, beyond that, I don't know. That's that's pretty much what I've got what I've got working on right now. Uh, I'm trying to come up with new show ideas but i haven't got anything i haven't got anything set in stone yet but i really hope that this next year of classic movies live is going to be a uh a very a very fun one 
I have some ideas that I've been sort of kicking around that uh, I'm pretty excited about if I can get them off the ground. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask you next is, uh, do you have any plans to follow up your Kicking It With Kendrick series with another long form series? Um, I think so. I might try to, I, I might try to push the ideas that I've had recently have been long form, but I want to try and make it a little shorter because this was 30 episodes basically. And, um, I've enjoyed that, but like we planned this out in October and, you know, we, we couldn't do them all in a batch. So it ended up being, there were a lot of episodes that, uh, I mean, I just said I loved every episode so far, but there's a lot of them where had I had, uh, had we had more time to prepare and like had a little bit of a better idea of some of the stuff going in, I think we could have done them better, which I guess is probably going to be the case with every show we ever do. But like, I'm taking the lessons that we've learned from that and trying to work that towards something else. I do not know exactly what that something else is yet, but I want to make it. I want to make something a little bit shorter than 30 episodes. I have an idea for what would probably be like five episodes coming up at some point. Interesting. They run it by yeah. Pierre. Okay. Yeah, that's really cool. Now, I know you you did it. Your previous long form series was Losing It with Leo about Leonardo DiCaprio movies. When um, Don't Look Up came out, you re- revitalized your Losing It with Leo brand. Is that going to be the case with both? Leonardo DiCaprio and Anna Kendrick, once you're done this series, that every once in a while you'll sort of uh, bring those series back to uh, to do cover their films again? Yes, absolutely. Like, I already, I don't have direct dates for them yet, obviously, but we are absolutely planning on doing the movies Alice Darling and uh, A Simple Favor 2 when those come out for uh, Kicking It With Kendrick. And... Actually, one of the things we had considered and are probably going to do, we just have to like have the time to devote to it, is we may be able to continue losing it over Leo um, on th- this uh, this summer because with kicking it with Kendrick, we went through every single movie that Anna Kendrick's ever done. With losing it over Leo, we had a different format to it, and uh, that means there's a lot of movies we haven't talked about yet. So we need to kind of figure out um, exactly how to group those movies together, which I just haven't had the time to do recently. I actually have a preliminary version of that in a spreadsheet somewhere that I just have to find. But there's like probably five to ten more movies, like two or three more life segments we can get to. It's just that these are no longer, you know, Leo young, Leo middle-aged, Leo old. This is now like we have to find another connecting tissue between them Mm -hmm. no that's fair enough well that's really cool oh i was gonna say we're gonna talk about don's plum whatever the next i don't know exactly what the theme is yet but the very next episode of losing it over leo will be don's plum (laughs) interesting the the mysterious movie that has so much intrigue about why it was uh hidden away yeah exactly i'm expecting a mark p's experience style movie Yes, I'm sure it's not going to be great um, and sort of delves into maybe the more problematic era of Leonardo DiCaprio. Yeah. I will uh, I will link to your show in the show notes and, and where people can follow that. Uh, once again, Jeff, thank you so much for coming on today. 
Yeah. And thank you so much for uh, letting me do one of these episodes. I think I told you off air, like one of my personal goals was to be on this show enough that uh, I could get a better know your better know a contributor episode. And um, yep. I definitely hope that if it's something he's open to and wants to do, and you end up having time, Pierre is also able to do that eventually. Though, like, you know, again, if, if the stars align and everyone is cool with it, I hope that he will get that chance. Absolutely. I try to keep a, a minimum threshold of at least three appearances. So that way there's a bit of more of a history there between us. Oh yeah. Uh, but yeah, I, I do want to eventually have Pierre on as well because you're, you're, both have been so instrumental to uh, to this show's growth, and uh, I mean, I just hope that uh, I'm I'm I don't know what it's going to be yet, but I'm very excited for whatever the next episode is that I get to be on because I always love doing these <laughs> guest spots. Uh, they're very different from my own show, obviously, and um, it's always it's always a lot of fun. Awesome. Well, I, I can't wait to have you back. You can follow this show on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at ContraZoomPod. And let me know your thoughts on Jeff's favorite films and hot takes. Send an email to ContraZoomPod at gmail.com. Thank you to Eric and Kevin Smale for the theme music and to Stephanie Pryor for the logo design. If you like to listen to podcasts on YouTube, we do post all episodes there as well. Thanks for checking us out. Bye.